all. Welcome to another episode of Colubrid and Colubroid Radio. Uh, we have a special guest with us today, um, and we'll be introducing him shortly. But uh, without further ado, uh, let's kind of get into what's happened over the past couple weeks, because there's been it's been a lot. Matt, Matt literally came in and landed 20 minutes before we started recording tonight. So <laughs> I usually start with what I've done. Let's shake it up a little bit and just talk about your past couple weeks, Matt. Oh, man. Well, you know, this is kind of the later part of the season where some things start to switch gears. Um, you know, not every species breeds directly in the spring. Um, so we're getting into that later part of the year where a lot of the Vietnamese mandarins um, are starting to lock, if not starting to ovulate, which is a great sign. Nice. Um, also, I, th- I think... And I, I don't want to push my luck, but I think I have a couple of Molendorfi that are about to drop. So that would be oh, sweet. cool for this year, um, especially having moved. And usually it takes, you know, on average uh, two to three years for animals to kind of settle into new areas, depending on how much of a change there was from environment to environment. Um, so that's kind of a, a cool little switch up and happy to see that because I think when I moved... Um, Two years ago, I think the problem was I, I moved during November. Yeah. And moving during that brumation time, I kind of shocked the animals and brought them out. Um, so I'm glad to see that those animals are finally settling in. Um, but it seems like every day I walk past the incubator, I'm pulling <laughs> hatchlings out, which is cool. Mm-hmm. It's it's fun, exciting, kind of scary when I'm <laughs> thinking about it. Um <laughs> Yeah, that but, that that you that know, end you have staring down that barrel is kind of interesting. <laughs> hmm. Yeah. So so far this season, um, you know, a lot of the animals that have really hatched are kind of the North American species. Some of the Texas rats, black rat snakes, um, corn snakes too, as well. And um, we might actually touch on some corn snakes tonight too, as well. But with that being said, I mean. I think there's already over 200 hatchlings already downstairs in the hatchling racks. Um, so kind of exciting. Some really, I don't know um, how to put this, but there were definitely genetics in some animals I didn't know were. And, I saw that on and your um, Instagram page. <laughs> well, there's, there's going to be a post by Clint here pretty soon on a black rat snake morph. Um, mm-hmm because hatched out some black rats and I called Clint and I go, this isn't right. <laughs> and Clint goes, no, we shouldn't have hatched out any of that stuff. That's really cool. Are you sure that you didn't put any other male in there? I go, nope. And it's a first time female. Oh, So definitely um, some interesting ac- aspects, not only from a new morph in black rats, mm. things, um, but also a... Other um, black rat snake morph that is kind of, I don't want to say like a commonality, but when you think about black rats, it's something that sticks out. Um, but I'll leave Clint Bartley to post that one because that <laughs> will be a cool little um, aspect of it. And um, other than that, just trying to stay afloat. Yep, keep your head above water. <laughs> yeah. You got that right. Uh, well, I've had a couple interesting weeks. We're, I think we're one week behind schedule for for posting um that's part of that's because i i did something insane i went on a vacation um and it it actually like it was nice 
Uh, but we went to the Outer Banks, and uh, I spent a lot of time at the Outer Banks. My family's been going to the Outer Banks before it was trendy to go to the Outer Banks in North Carolina. Um, and when I was in high school, I ran around. Uh, I would go to, like, Nags Head, Kitty Hawk, Kill Devil Hills, and then everybody goes to the beach, and I would turn around and walk west into those maritime forests and chase hognose snakes and corn snakes and uh, red belly water snakes. And um, the first venomous snake I ever caught was back in there, and it was an eastern cottonmouth. So uh, the week we were there, the weather was it was insanely perfect for late June. It was at night; it was almost chilly. So, uh, you know, my my wife was like, "This is the family vacation," and I was like, "Yes, it's the family vacation." And then I would wake up and think, "Oh my god." These conditions are so freaking perfect for herping, it's ridiculous. So somehow I had a secret weapon, which was my son. So I was like, yo, Colin, you want some father-dad time? And, of course, I wanted to have father-dad time. So Colin and I went herping a lot on the vacay, and uh, he didn't catch a cottonmouth. But um, we absolutely had his first venomous snake in the wild experience, which was for a father who goes herping and does reptiles and amphibians i i i, I kind of thought like this must have been what it was like when i shot my first buck with my dad because <laughs> i didn't really want to do it i did it i ate it it was good but my dad was like losing his crap and i could definitely see on colin's face like why are you so excited so that was that was pretty cool um and then as far as yeah, we're in the same boat at West Liberty. All of those eggs that we talked about are absolutely hatching. Um, we have two corn snake projects going on, and I think we're up to – we've had two clutches hatch, and, t- like, they're completely out. But I think last time I was talking with the students, we had, like, four or five pipping right now. Uh, and when, when those hatch, those kids have to – they're measuring the head length, the head width, the snout vent length, the tail length, and they're weighing them. So, you know, one snake takes about 10 minutes. And when five clutches go, that's a lot of it's a lot of good data. But uh, we had those. Uh, my first Getulus complex that I intentionally bred uh, have now hatched. So I had a clutch of Outer Banks king snakes. There's another tie to the Outer Banks. You can all, everybody now knows why those things are so special to me, by the way, after that little diatribe. Um, and my mat, uh, so I had a bunch of Madagascarophis colubrinus, um, Madagascar cat-eyed snakes. I have two females and they both went. So those of all, those are all out. So I've got 20 of those now, um, which is pretty awesome. And, uh, just projects, projects, more projects and projects up at the university. And then next week's going to be fun. Um, one of my graduate students, Aaron Allison, uh, she, her thesis is really cool. Uh, one of her chapters is on basically how, what story do we tell to get people to not kill rattlesnakes? And so traditionally, you were taught, if you're from our generation, Matt, uh, that you teach this utilitarian story of snakes eat mice, mice give us diseases, we, we don't kill the rattlesnakes because they help us that way. And more recently, people have started to anthropomorphize the story and basically talk about the fact that rattlesnakes, when they have their young, you know, they, there's evidence of parental care, uh, the whole communal den site, uh, the recent papers that have come out that show that you know, snakes have friends. I don't think snakes have friends, <laughs> but I think snakes have like 
acquaintances uh, or, or individuals that they know if I follow this one, I end up at the den and I don't die over winter, like that kind of thing. So Aaron did this really cool thing with social media and we put together a survey, we made videos and we just basically tested which of those two stories, an anthropomorphic story or a utilitarian story, gets people to convert to at least not wanting to kill or wanting to at least walk away. And what's really cool is we've been working with someone uh, at California Polytechnical University, Dr. Emily Taylor, and we're working with advocates for snake preservation on this thing. And Erin got asked to present her um, research at the Biology Pit Vipers Conference, which is next week. So, you know, being asked, having your student being asked to go to a conference in the middle of the desert where there's more rattlesnake species than anywhere outside of Mexico, that was a really hard thing for me to say yes to. So uh, we're going to be down there all next week, and I love the desert southwest. I've been there one time, um, so we'll be herping our brains out and with a whole bunch of snake biologists, and it's going to be pretty, pretty badass. So we're all excited, but it's also the middle of field season, so I'm certain that I'll be down in Arizona, and my crayfish stuff back in Appalachia will be exploding, and I will probably be putting out fires that are happening in rivers while I'm standing in a desert. So, <laughs> so we'll see how that goes down. But, yeah, just living the dream That's all I have to say about that. So uh, that's really all I have. Anything else on your end, Matt? Nope. No, that's about it. Uh, you want to plug your uh, search for graduate students? Oh, yeah, yeah, or, let's yeah. do that now. So uh, come on, guys. I've had, I've had two bites in the, 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 the hundreds of times I have plugged the grad student. It's not really hundreds. We only have like 14 episodes, so it's more like 14 to 20, but it feels like 100 times. Um, but yeah, the, the grad student front, I mean, some of the projects I have lined up for herpetoculture are insane. I'm talking with somebody in Japan right now that works with Andreas Japonicus, like the giant Japanese salamander. Um, and I might have a field project that involves giant Japanese salamanders. So for like, if, if somebody would have offered that to me when I was fresh out of undergrad, I'd be, you know, thrown to death. So if you're a salamander person and you're looking for grad school, this isn't official yet. It's as close to official as it's official enough for me to talk about it on the podcast. And then our Costa Rica stuff we have, I was on the phone just yesterday with, um, the woman we're working with for development of the, the field station that we'll be using. Uh, and we're talking about doing a really cool study investigating UVA and UVB radiation where we'll take boa constrictors and have them in the field in enclosures where they will literally be in Costa Rica where they're native to. And um, so it's replicating captivity down there. And then we're going to, we're, we're hopefully going to be looking at blood chemistry to see, is there a change in vitamin D3 and, and you know, carbohydrates and, and lipids and all that kind of good stuff? And then we'll be replicating that with boa constrictors back in West Virginia, which is about as far away from Costa Rica and their native habitat as you can get. And, and seeing, like, are we hitting the, the physio, physiological attributes of, of these snakes in human care, uh, which can go any number of ways, it, you know, and... and and we're scientists, so we don't really want it to go in any one way. We just want to know what way it's going, if that makes sense. So those are two projects that are so close to fruition that I can talk about them now. And I need graduate students to work on them. So there's that. And then next year is the year of the hog nose for me. So there will absolutely be 
so much heterodon stuff going on in my life. It's ridiculous because wrapping up the Dips Added book now, and I got to get a lot of data quickly for hognose snakes. So uh, the best way to do it is to make it someone's thesis. So I don't know exactly what that's going to entail, but there's absolutely going to be the potential for that. So if you're interested in any of these things, be like the two individuals that reached out to me um, and please reach out uh, because we're look, I'm looking to have enthusiastic, excited students that were just like me when I was in my mid to early twenties. So uh, by all means, hit me up on Instagram or Facebook, please. Or if you want, email me. So yeah, thanks for reminding me on the plug, Matt. So <laughs> there you go. All right. Are we ready to jump in? I think so. Okay. I think we're good. So do you want to introduce our guest this time? You can. I mean, we kind of keep the same platform here. All right, we'll do it. (laughs) So our guest tonight is Josh Berlinger. Um, Josh uh, has done quite a bit of work with Matt um, in the the focal species for tonight's episode. Uh, Josh shares a, a passion for file snakes just like Matt. So we're going to be finally, you know, talking about the files. And I know people want us to talk about file snakes. So this is going to be a fun one. And then, as you all know, if you listen to our podcast, we just let the conversation go where it's going to go. So there could be some Asian rat snake talk. There could be some talk about um, you know, how, how herpetoculture has grown, given Josh is a relatively young guy in, in the uh, hobby. And then he's been working and discussing with some older people in the hobby. And it's kind of we have some cool little avenues to speak about on that front. So without, you know, that's our introduction. So how are you doing tonight, Josh? Good. Thank you for uh, having me on. All right. Sweet. So we, we always kind of do the, the general, how'd you get into herps? Have you been in herps forever? Is this something that um, has just recently come about? Where does where does your interest in these wonderful animals that we love so much um, originate? Uh, it's been forever. Um, I think I was like ten, and my uncle owns a wholesale like pet store where he he just does fish and you know mainly now. Um, but back in the day, I was never allowed to have a dog, so I decided to pick out a it was a snow corn snake at the time. That was my first snake. And then it just kind of evolved from there. I Perfect. went to um, what was it the White Plains Expo and saw people who were doing this and breeding and you know selling snakes and making money off of it. And I'm like, you know what? It's like I gotta really look into this. And I kind of just you know dove right in. And ever since then, I've been either you know I've had something, whether there's breeding projects or just you know pets. <laughs> so so on those. That line of thought. So you started with the with the corns. Um, talk a little bit about what animals you've worked with and, and what you're you know kind of up through the collection as it stands today. Um, I've pretty much worked with everything. I've had ball pythons. Um, right now, my collection is very diverse. I have a lot of stuff from Matt. Um, whether you know the, the old world, uh, you know rat snakes. Um, I have some kink snakes, you know, trans-pecos rat snakes. Uh, I've got some boas. i got literally a little bit of everything. My main thing is I do uh, crested geckos. That's like my main kind of large oh. chunk of my collection. 
And then I actually actually have some uh, false water cobras too. One I got from you, Zach. <laughs> oh, nice. You have, yeah. So, <laughs> so we have files from Matt and falsies from me. That yep. totally explains why you're on our podcast. <laughs> there it is. Yes, the bells are ringing now. All right. <clears throat> so, so Josh, like with that even being said, I mean, you you've got the crested gecko focus, but what kind of pushed you or pursued you to? You know, other than this, the initial snow corn, what kind of made you kind of go into some of the colubrids and, and looking at some of the different varieties of those? Um, after keeping hundreds of ball pythons and wanting snakes again, I said to myself, there's no way I'm getting ball pythons that are so picky with eating and feeding live all the time. I was like, I want to do this, but I want to do it where everything or majority of everything will eat frozen and that's where my collection is at right now pretty much everything takes frozen and it's you know every week none you know yeah, whenever i, I feed it's no issues mm-hmm. and that's kind of the biggest thing yeah, no i think that's a real kind of important part to even bring about oh yeah it's it's just so much easier yeah, yeah and, a lot of people go that that go that route it's a, it's a lot easier, you know, between having the, the mice and rats delivered every week, um, you know, even just the the dollar-wise, uh, Frozen, it's so much, you know, cheaper to buy um, and to just keep, you know. If you have leftover live mice and rats, you need to have somewhere for it. Um, I normally keep everything out of my, uh, you know, where my reptiles are so you don't have a sense so just so it's it's a lot cleaner and so the animals don't go crazy too. I, I, yeah, there's nothing worse than the, the ammonia smell oh, yeah. <laughs> afterwards with keeping mice and rats. And, and then that there's something to be said. We've talked about it a couple times on the podcast uh, about having the peace of mind. You know, this is supposed to be fun. <laughs> so there, there's nothing like getting home and then you have that $900 animal that isn't eating and you've stressed about it all damn day. And then, you, you you know, I can't tell you how many times I came running down here into the office where the snakes are. And I put the pinky out before I went to school. And the whole day, about once every 15 minutes, I'm thinking, did that thing eat? Did that thing eat? It needs to eat like that whole thing. And then you come down, you see that mouse. I'm like, ah, oh! uh, no. And now I have like, that's why I went to the king snakes. And and those things are so food oriented; they'll try to eat themselves. So, like, yeah, I, I want the. I, I, I'm I'm listen, I, I hear what you're saying, John. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> Even some of the like, I'm surprised some of the like colder species so, are like they pound food. It's like they're almost like a false water cobra, where they just you know are very food motivated. Like some of the mandarins I have destroy whatever you put in front of them. And it's awesome. I love it. Yes. Well, that means you're keeping them right. Yeah. Because if they're not if they're not kept right, then they get to be finicky eaters. And then people are freaking out, worried, and usually it has to do with husbandry, unfortunately. So, but, you know, it's, um, I, I guess that might actually be kind of a cool point to kind of jump into 
maybe the the file snakes because those things have just such a tremendous feeding appetite and maybe we can talk about you know some of the mandarins too as well maybe the falsies mm-hmm. maybe well, anything yeah yeah no the actual the file snakes so they're... what got you initially no, oh, go, ahead. go ahead no um, so the file snakes, like oh, Matt was saying. Well, with the file snakes, what got you? So I liked um, what? I liked how they were. I thought, you know, the the feeling of them. Um, just like the first time I saw them, I was like, all right, like these are very unique. Like I didn't see anything like that. And going to shows and having the ball pythons, I was like, okay, you know, like they were kind of a garbage snake at the time. Um, and then, you know, Matt breeding them, I was just like, all right, these are actually pretty cool. And once I got my hands on them, I fell in love with them. It was, you know, I have both the capes and the uh, cross eyes and they're just awesome. They're literally like, they literally come out almost like a falsie trying to eat. It's insane. Um, especially the big girls that I just got. Those are, they're very food motivated. It's actually really awesome. And they know, like, the difference, too. Yeah, that's, like, one of the most, um... No, you can get that. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and taking them out... It's definitely one of the more interesting parts of it. Yeah, and taking them out, too, it's like they almost know, you know? Like, they make me a little bit nervous when they start turning around, and, you know, it's... But they're pretty cool once you take them out. It's, you know, um, it's that first initial reaction when you get them out of the tub, but and they realize you're not food. They're they're awesome. They're some of my favorite snakes that I have in the collection. So going off of that, Josh, um, since, I mean, I, I'm probably the only person that ever really talks about it. You want to go into how you're keeping both uh, species of the files in terms of husbandry, um, style of keeping, and just kind of layer it out either by cross-eye or by capes? Um, I have them both pretty much the same way. They're both just on mulch, you know, with, uh, like I keep them all in tubs. Um, I think I have that's that rack set at like 85 or something like that. And they're doing, I mean, they're, they're awesome. They, you know, um, if they're pretty basic and simple, it's not like there's anything difficult to them. Um, I would say almost like keeping like a corn snake or something like that. It's not, you know, uh, I would say almost rocket science to keep them alive or, you know, to keep them going. Is that similar to the way that you're keeping them at, or are you keeping them a little different or might as well? No, this out same there. way. I mean, um, I mean, within both of them, I've kept them both on Cypress mulch, um, typically with a warm spot, about 85 relative humidity, like 60, 65, so just a little bit more moist than what, you know, your average room is. But um, other than that, I mean, Josh kind of nails it. I mean, he's he's raised some from hatchlings, and recently um, I cut back on some of my breeding products, and um, Josh ended up getting a trio of adult uh, cross-eye, too, as well. And, you know, they're... I don't want to say food aggressive, but they know when you open up the tub and you got food in your hands ready to feed them. So, so I have a question as someone who has zero experience with file snakes. 
Uh, do are they very are they fissorial? Like are they underground? Like that that body plan they have in the keeled scales to me, knowing what I know about snakes, says this is a snake that's on like burrowing through the substrate. But at the same time, I don't know if they're actually doing that. So like with with the mulch and the subs, when you pull the tub open, are they like up on it or are they down in it or a little bit of both? Uh, what, what's because I I know um, with Musaranas, Boiruna, a lot of people that keep them um, will have them on repti chip and mulch because they'll go down in it and 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 come up out of it. Uh, so and I've always kind of I don't know why. There's probably nothing to it, but I've kind of always in my head allied the Musaran false Musaranas to the files in Africa. So what's the deal on that front? Um, I haven't noticed them, you know, mainly when I pull out any tub, they're sitting right on top. Uh, normally it's almost like by the water bowl kind of, um, the females right now, since I have a, um, like a high box or a lay box in there, they kind of always have been in there. Um, but even the, even the male, like he's normally right on top, either sitting kind of by the water bowl or, you know, just laid back, but they're normally... I'm. I don't think I've ever seen them, you know, in the mulch at all. I don't know what your observation has been with them, Matt. No, it's it's been very similar. Um, you know, I've changed keeping style a couple of times in terms of either offering a hide box, um, a wet box, like a lay box, or just cork flats. But I've never actually noticed them. Um, burrowing within the substrate and I've kept them on peat moss cypress um, I moved away from the peat moss just purely because they're such an aggressive feeder <laughs> so they go after the food and they shake it around and um, I always worried about all that peat moss getting in their gum lines mm-hmm. um, so that was part of the push or move towards the respective cypress but That's really I think cool. the more interesting part is like the defensive feature. And I don't know if you've experienced this yet, Josh, but like if they are threatened, it, you can go into it then because that is kind of an interesting aspect of it. Um, I think I mentioned this when I got the babies from you and I tried to take them out of their deli cups once you sent them. I, I mean, I don't know if this is what you're talking about, but for me, I've noticed that they kind of push like their body against each other and kind of like put whatever it is against their scales and kind of almost make it like uh, like a weird feeling for you. Um, and I don't know if that's the defense feature that you're talking <laughs> about, but that's what I noticed when I was pushing, you know, taking the babies out. Yeah. Well, and, and it's kind of um, part of it is they, they really try to file at your hand yeah. almost. It's one species of snakes that's never offered to bite. Um, I've never been bit by one. But the other defensive part about them that's kind of unique or interesting is their musk is solid black. And it smells <laughs> yes. like burnt rubber, and it's awful to get off your hands. Huh. I don't think I've ever had that's that special. yet, thankfully. <laughs> <laughs> Just be be happy on that one because I once got it on my shirt and I was like, "Is this tar? Like, oh, like what is going on?" That sounds this? terrible. Whoa. Is that both species? <laughs> yeah. Is it is it both yeah, of them? Both huh. of them. Well, cool. But you, 
It is both. But very unique because um, typically you don't see that musk is black or anything of that nature. I mean, Mullendorfi musk is like jet red when we were talking about them before, but like the solid black, ugh, and the smell on these. Um, but I've only had it happen once, and I was like, holy cow, what happened? <laughs> oh, that's terrible. Man. <laughs> well, I don't think you're going to have that issue, um, especially working with the captive-born animals, too, as well. Um that happened when I was pulling out a wild-caught animal out of a bag, uh, fresh wild-caught, and that animal, it was a large female, and she wanted nothing to do with uh, anything that day. So, oh, so what's the frequency like of feeding? Like snakes <laughs> yeah. Uh, I'll do, oh, let me, I'll, I'll do like once a week, um, you know, feedings. It depends. Uh, like right now, the females, you know, that I'm trying to get them to breed. So, uh, like, it, right, I'm doing bigger meals once a week. Um, I don't know if you found that to be best with breeding, Matt. Um, but normally, like, you know, for the the corn snakes or, or other colubrids, I'll do smaller meals, um, like every three days to try to keep them going. Um, but they have no problems, you know, feeding. I'll feed the uh, those adult females almost like a small to medium rat, and they take it down no problem. The male's a little bit picky um, when it comes to food, but he still is not, you know, not bad. He'll take down probably like a weaned rat or something like that. Now, I, I think it might be important to, to make this um – connection here too we're talking about rats not mice yes. right yes rats mm-hmm. yeah they're getting rats <laughs> <laughs> because most of the animals that you see offered um you know they're they're not large so i think we, mm-hmm. you know just in terms of like feeding this kind of represents you know the adult size of some of these animals and and what their kind of feeding response in nature is Oh yeah, now the the, the yeah. adults will take down you know small rats no problem. It's awesome. And and in terms of you know like the the breeding cycle and stuff like that, Josh. I mean, no, you're doing the right thing. Um, typically, what will end up happening here in probably like the next month or so is once this like heat wave kind of comes up. Um, the male will probably go off feed altogether and that will actually be the best time to throw that male in with the females and typically you'll want to feed the females a day before introducing them and that male will typically lock up almost instantaneously okay yeah that's what i do i i do the i'll feed all the girls or i'll feed everybody and then i'll throw the male in with the girls just to be safe because with them being very food motivated i don't want to have any issues Yeah. Well, and and that's kind of, you know, the aspect of this species is with cross-eye especially, um, the relative feeding behavior, I think they're just opportunistic feeders, um, whereby they'll eat pretty much anything. 
and I think that's typically kind of one of the things when people start to talk about snake eating snakes and um, whereas the capes whenever I have bred them I typically have had to offer them snakes to get started as babies yeah when you sent me the capes you sent me corn snakes but that could also be the fact that I did send you corn snakes. Yeah, and I'm like, I thought you were joking because, like, they they pounded food no problem. And I'm just like, okay, like, was this, like, a joke or was it, like, just in case? And then I realized you are serious about it. I'm like, all right, okay. Like, but they they have no issues with them since I've had them. Yeah. And, Josh, you want to jump in and talk maybe about the capes and – kind of um feeding behavior i mean because they're only what now a year and a half or so i think i think just over a year i've had them for now but yeah that they have and maybe talk about kind of like their growth response um okay yeah they so that's pretty much similar to the um to the cross eyes and far as food goes you know very food driven um like you said probably just opportunistic feeders uh and then they they'll grow i mean the 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 female is i'm starting to notice she's getting bigger than the male um and that's just how it goes i think i don't know the capes i'm assuming are the same way as the cross eyes and but i don't go crazy feeding them I'm not like looking to, you know, power feed or anything like that. It's just, you know, every week just staying on top of them and just feeding them. And they're growing at a good rate. You know, it's not like the fall season or anything like that, you know, where they just blow up all of a sudden. But they're definitely, you know, they they definitely put on um, size fast. Yeah, it, it's one of those things. I think it's kind of interesting. Um, just over time, watching the files actually grow, and based on their feeding behavior too, because those things just—I mean—they're like a, a king snake mm-hmm. from Africa. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah so do they I, do they turn around and like bite their tail and try to eat it? <laughs> like, because that's what ha- that's what mine are doing. My king snakes are doing right. I have noticed them, so. like, just missing completely. But, like, when I first got them, they were a little bit more, like you said, I guess relaxed with feeding. Not, um, you know, I'd have to leave the the prey in overnight and then they take it that way. Now it's just as I can't even drop it in fast enough for them sometimes. So it's definitely cool. And also, too, I feel like they're cha- almost changing, not changing colors. But like they're the um, the lightness to them is coming out a lot more as they're growing, like that pinkish hue, I guess you could call it. Yeah, I, I have noticed that with um, some of the capes, especially. So the original um, group of capes that I acquired, um, Philippe de Vogio, um had actually given me adult females that were actually wild-caught animals. And I had some captive-born males um, from Germany, and those two kind of, the two pairs that I had kind of created, you know, the lineage that's now being offered within the hobby. Um, 
and I haven't released a, a number of them either. I mean, Josh, you're you're one of two people <laughs> that have them at this point. Um, but with that even being said, you know, watching some of the animals that I've held back, I mean, I'm amazed at the color and the brightness of some of the captive-born animals that have, have really kind of been brought out. Um, because I, I have no idea how old the wild-caught capes that I have are. Um, because, you know, Tanzania has been closed off from export for, I think, over 10 years. So those original wild-caught animals are probably over 10 years, maybe 15 years old. Holy. Because um, Philippe had said they were adults when they were imported. Um, so, you know, who knows? Um, but it is kind of cool to at least get some of that lineage really going because I think that's an important part for the hobby even going forward is really kind of securing um, these species in you know both the private as well as the public sector um, because you know as you and I had talked about before and I introduced you to um, a friend of mine Mark and you know Mark had you know some uh, conversations with you that I think maybe you want to talk about or share with the the collective audience because i think it is interesting when we talk about the hobby itself and connecting with other keepers i definitely when i spoke to mark you know me and him were talking about a bunch of stuff but he basically said that you know certain species that you're special you know specifically working with matt are um kind of just you know, the it's almost conservation work at this point. You know, you're not seeing them so much in the wild. Uh, you know, if um, he basically said, God forbid, if anything happened to the collection, you know, your collection or whatever, there, you know, those animals would kind of be lost. So it made me kind of open my eyes to certain things I was working with. And, you know, instead of the more common things, I wanted more of a challenge with the species as I was was working with. So that's why I got the the Japanese um, forest snakes um, from you. And then, you know, just some other stuff, like even just the the mandarins and the Vietnamese stuff. You know, that's that's the main thing. You know, there's a lot of um, more common animals in the hobby that you know everybody seems to be working with but those rare you know niche type animals um you know are very few and that's why you know i I think it's important to really you know keep that stuff going now and you know it it is kind of an interesting aspect because you know we've seen in the hobby and, and zach can command on this too i mean you see waves right Mm -hmm. where sometimes um you know animals are heavily imported for whatever reason and then they disappear or people lose interest in them um and then that animal is lost to the hobby forever um you know even you know with some of the porphyracea um like volanti for instance um what's interesting is years ago those animals were readily available overseas and in germany europe and now I'm having people contact me from overseas asking about those animals because they can't find them, hmm. um, which is very interesting. And I think it's kind of um, within the hobby itself. I think sometimes we look at you know what's trending in one area versus the other, and never really take it into a part of like a global hobby mm-hmm. because there's so many different um, nature characteristics of it that. 
you know, if certain people aren't specializing in certain uh, species or working with certain things or diversifying their collections for what they enjoy, you may never see that animal again in the hobby. Yep. And yeah, on that line kind of, of thought, it's kind of sad to think. Uh, I've heard lots of people um, talk on podcasts and things where, like, if you're a, a ball python breeder, or a carpet python breeder, or a king snake breeder, or corn snake breeder, that it might be cool if you if you have like your bread and butter, and then you have just some animal that's not overly common that you put some time into and maintain. So that we, we can have it here uh, in the hobby or herpetoculture or whatever you want to call it. Um, on that same line of thought, I think it's it's important too that people never take anything for granted. Uh, I remember just in my little miniature resurgence back into you know herpetoculture since we I got the position at the university and had to start teaching the class and all that jazz. Um, I've seen things at local shows and on King Snake and Fauna and Morph Market that one year they're everywhere and then you don't see them ever again. <laughs> and it's just kind of interesting how those waves come. Um, and then the other thing, which I can say, being that I am literally a card-carrying conservation biologist, it is nice for people to get a line of something or a captive population uh, because let's be real, if we can choose between a captive bred example of something and a wild caught example of something, I know I'm choosing the captive bred 100% of the time. Um, and it, it does kind of relieve some pressure. Um, I don't think it relieves all the pressure, but I definitely think it relieves some of the pressure on those animals out in the wild. Uh, and with all the legislation that's going on right now, I know, um, I think New Jersey, the state you're in, uh, Josh, because West Virginia copied their regs. Um, like you can't keep a normal looking corn snake, but you can keep a snow corn snake. So like, it's a nice way to kind of compromise with some of the regulations. We're not going to go any further down this rabbit hole because this could be a three and a half hour conversation. But at the same time, you know, having those captive populations, uh, it's always going to be a good thing for for our discipline yeah you're, right. yeah you're right no you're right zach the um here in jersey it's basically anything with albino in it or what they consider has red eyes per se um and yeah i don't get that law at all but you know like you said that could be a three-hour rant <laughs> Well, I, the, the the law behind it is basically to relieve – they don't want you collecting animals from the wild. And I, I'm not saying you – know, here I am going down that rabbit hole. I said we're not going to go down. But it is true that on one given night on a road, you'll probably wipe out far more corn snakes getting hit by our cars than you know collectors. But you get the – I mean that's just – at some point we do need to own the fact that there are – unscrupulous collectors out there that figure out a species and the next thing you know they've got bags full of them and they are causing a localized you know decline um we can debate the impact of that decline on another day but i i do think there is at least new jersey's willing to compromise um and say you can still have corn snakes uh because when the curb came out in west virginia initially 
two years ago, it was literally no corn snakes. And I was like, you, you've just literally removed the ball python of colubrid land. <laughs> like they're at the Petco right. up the road right now for sale. And, and conversations with DNR biologists led to the compromise of, okay, you can have the morphs. So it sucks if you're a locality person, but, um, if you want corn snakes, there's now a mechanism to have the corn snakes and herpetoculture provided that mechanism through captive breeding and, and, you know, all that kind of jazz. So I don't know. Oh, yeah. no, I, under- I understand that aspect That's of it. it. <laughs> <laughs> well, that- yeah. Now you got Zach all fired. up. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not, try, no, I'm fine. Sorry. I'm fine. <laughs> so, Anyway, it's okay. Hey, so Josh, uh, switching gears a little bit, let's talk about mandarins because right now is kind of the hatchling season for mandarins, Chinese variety, and you start to see people writing messages of my mandarin's not eating, or is this the proper setup for my mandarin rat snake, or you know, how do you keep mandarins blah 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 going down that road. In your experience, you have the Vietnamese mandarins. How are the Vietnamese mandarins to keep? They're very easy. Um, I only had an issue with one with feeding that I kind of squared away, but they're 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 a breeze. Uh, the main thing is, like, I keep them cold. They're I think the hot spots at like seventy five, um, and like I said, I've never had an issue with them. They're probably like. As far as mandarins go, uh, they I think they blow the Chinese out of the water with the size and everything like that. Yeah. And how are you keeping your mandarins, I guess, other than the 75 degrees temperature? Are you keeping them in racks, cages, substrate? Um, I have them pretty much set up like you do. Uh, I have them all in racks. Um, I have the big one. You know, I have a big bigger female she's like in a 70 30 you know ball python style adult racks um and then the babies i just have you know in regular uh you know shoebox type tubs um you know they're on cypress mulch uh i have a hide firm you know cork bark hide and that's really it uh you know spray down every once in a while or when i see the water bowl getting low i'll pour that in into the mulch and you know like i said they're, they're fairly simple And feeding-wise, similar aspect, feeding once a week, every couple of days. What's kind of your style or technique? I feed everything normally just once a week just to make it easier for me, um, especially with having – like I have a very big gecko you know, collection. That's where my main – you know, like I said before, the main focus is at. So I spend a lot of time feeding all of those – you know, the, all the geckos. So it's normally once a week on the weekends. This way I could – I – when I feed, I normally just take every all the defrosted mice and rats and I just lay them out. So I've noticed that it kind of helps um, trigger our food response a little bit better. Instead of putting them in water and defrosting them that way, I'll lay them out for a couple hours. And I've noticed that you know certain snakes that have been a little bit pickier um, will have no problems taking it, you know, taking whatever food it is. It's interesting because no one has ever talked about this mm-hmm. on the podcast relative to 
uh, feeding behavior with tricky snakes relative to the defrost style of rodents. <laughs> so, well, I've noticed like the Transpecos rats that I have. Some of them were they only wanted like almost live, and I'm like, okay, well, let me try something, and I would. After I put them in, you know, defrost them in water, I would take them out and put them under like a heat lamp for a little bit. And normally then they would grab it. So then I'm like, you know what, let me just switch up gears completely because I have, I think, a decent amount of Transpecos. I have probably like maybe half a dozen or so. So I'm like, you know what, let me just take all the food that I'm feeding and just defrost it, you know, just leave it out and see what happens. And I've noticed that they definitely go for them a lot, you know, a lot better, um, you know, much stronger food response. Right now, cool. yeah, we'll have to have you come back on and talk about Transpecos because mm-hmm. that's a, a species that really has disappeared from the hobby um, in terms of animals availability, different morphs um, do as well. So that's a very interesting species to keep. Um, so one thing, you know, Josh, you and I were talking about before um, Zach kind of jumped in on, and we started recording was the breeding season in terms of, you know, colubrids and generalities. And I think it's something to talk about. You know, we, we don't need to t- touch on it with file snakes or, um, you know, mandarins. But obviously, you do keep other colubrids. What is your technique or style to prepping animals for bromation, um, going through your cycling of colubrids? Um, I have a rack that I keep in my garage, and I kind of just throw whatever I'm cycling into that rack, and you know, put them down for the winter, and then bring them back up, and you know, um, put them back in there, you know. Uh, their actual racks um it just kind of makes a little bit things easier for me uh but this year has been very tricky i've noticed with breeding for some reason i've been getting a lot of slugs and i don't know if it's just because it's the first time that you know my uh i had one clutch so far which was the female slugged out and it was the first time female corn and then i have some arizona mountain kings that are going and I think they're going to slug out too. Um, but I kind of got them right before breeding season and brumation. So I'm wondering if that played a part in it. Um, but yeah, I'm really not too sure because I put a lot of stuff down later than I probably should have. But it was still, I mean, still winter time. But I just don't know if that played a part in it, you know, with everything. So I'm just hoping for the best. What is the winter like in your part of New Jersey? That's kind of a – are you in northern Jersey, southern Jersey? Like does it get cold, cold? Um, I'm in north what's Jersey. What's the deal with, with winter? Because we – okay. Yeah, so I'm in north Jersey. Um, sometimes it could get cold, cold. Uh, this winter I've noticed it's been a little bit more mild. Um so I don't know, you know, if those temps played a part in it. I would assume so. Um, but, yeah, sometimes it could get freezing cold. It's, yeah, not fun. Not fun. <laughs> okay. 
Gotcha. So did you – when it gets super cold and you have your animals in the garage, do you do any kind of intervention or is it like a garage connected to your house? Um, it's – yeah. What, the what do you do in can- that scenario? The garage is connected to my house, um, so normally I'll have like a space heater in there just to be safe. But I think I'm trying to remember what temps it got to, but I think I like try to keep it at like 45, 50 ish. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah, it really stayed pretty constant. Um, every now and then, on a on a warmer day, it would jump up, but and that was kind of out of my control. You know, just because it was, like I said, it was a very mild winter, I feel like. So some of the days, you know, it was mm-hmm. probably close to, you know, 50 or 60. And that's what the garage got to, um, unfortunately. But, mm-hmm. yeah, that's I tried to, you know, monitor everything as best possible. Like I said, I did have a space heater in there just to be safe because you never know, um, you know, especially for those cold, cold nights. But, yeah, normally I stayed around, like, you know, between – 45 ish didn't really drop anything below that intriguing okay yeah i always you know it's interesting um because you're like zach running and putting stuff in the coldest part of the garage (laughs) um but i always wonder and and you know are we maybe bringing males out too soon for pairing are the males getting too warm um and and respectively off of that you know do you introduce your males at certain points in the season do you keep your males at the same levels in racks um what's kind of your approach that way i normally try to keep the males on the lower levels of racks um right now i'm very challenged with how my setup is but normally I like the males on the bottom of the racks just because it stays a little bit cooler. The I kind of brought everybody in and out of brumation almost the same time frame. Um, it wasn't like, all right, you know, the males are getting, you know, two, two weeks extra or whatever. It was just I did everything in, you know, one whole group. Um, and when I introduced, it's really, you know, it depends on the male and normally I wait till they shut out and see how their food response is um, and then start pairing, you know, as soon as I kind of can. Uh, and then once I feel like the females, you know, starting to develop follicles, I'll, I'll normally check to see, um, you know, I start really cycling that male in. Yeah, well, one of the things that happened with me this year is – I got – I'm realizing how many times I got duped by ovulation swells thinking that they were evidence that the snakes were gravid. And so I was literally pulling the boys at the absolute worst time. Um, and I know that this coming season, next year I've decided they're staying with – I've heard Matt say this before. There's, the boys are staying with the girls all the way through like pre-lay sheds. <laughs> I'm not messing around trying to like deduce what, the, what I'm seeing. Cause I, I learned my lesson a little bit uh, this year. Have you run into any kind of issues on those, those fronts or, or no? No, normally I'll pair until I know like the females definitely gravid. Um, it's normally like once I feel like she stops eating, 
and you know you could see the ovulation and you know the eggs inside almost um that's kind of when i'll stop pairing um you know just because you want to be sure you know uh if it's an extra week of pairing, it's not going to, you know, make or break the male, I feel like, unless I'm running the male to, you know, a ton of females where it's really stressing them out. Cool. Yeah, and, and Josh and I were talking about this um, relative to some of the North American species. I don't know what it is this year, but um, double clutching... I think I might have missed marks this year um, because I've noticed either I've missed marks or the males have gotten too warm um, because some of the double clutches of animals that normally would have just went regular, um, I've actually seen more slugs this year mm. from. And and I, I'm not 100% sure. I still contribute, you know, you know, Josh, your your experience here too. I think some of it has to do with the weather um, that we've seen the last couple of seasons with the up, down, up, down, because that does play a role with these animals. Um, and I, I think I'm, and I, I say this just out of um, pure experience, but I remember cleaning animals, and I had um, leucistic Texas rats. And I was running out of space, and, and typically when I clean racks, I'll leave empty mm-hmm. tubs in there. And I, I'm like, well, I'll just throw these two together. You know, female laid, she's not in her, you know, ready to lay a second clutch or anything like that. And go in to put the animals back, and they're locked. So obviously <laughs> they had copulated, and I'm like, well, this is great. Mm-hmm. Did the same thing with mandarins, pulling them out. Oh, great, awesome. Um but I I wonder sometimes with some of that, you know, either the weather is triggering a different response based upon the cycle. Because um, I've had corn snakes even lay three clutches a year. Holy! And you know, it, it. I think in captivity we take some of this stuff for granted of how even with proper means of double clutching animals. Um, because typically if an animal is going to cycle a second time, you might as well have a male in there. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think I I may have missed something, or maybe my males had gotten too warm and the sperm count decreased, but I'm not in there like uh, uh, Chad Fouch going up and (laughs) scooping up goo and looking under a microscope. I'll I'll just let it be. I'm good. (laughs) So... um, but, you know, it's it's food for thought. I think it's something, you know, relative of this conversation because a lot of people don't like to talk about it, you know, Josh. And I, I commend you for bringing that up because I think it brings up a different topic that a lot of people never really think about. Oh, yeah, definitely. And the weird yeah. part was this, like, and, and when I oh, – sorry, Zach. Um, when I was still at my parents' house, I had everything in my basement – well, their basement and – um, the main room where I kept most of my snakes was to the uh, – we had a big saltwater fish tank and it was kept in um, a wall. So the back end of the, the fish tank was kind of in like the bo- boiler room. And I had basically a rack set up in there. And um, the first time I really tried breeding corn snakes was in that room. 
didn't cycle them, didn't do anything, and I had eggs. And it was the weirdest thing because <laughs> I didn't think they would go. And I'm just like, you know what? Let me try it for you know the hell of it. And I, you know, like Sima, I think maybe the barometric barometric pressure is you know really the key thing for a lot of these species and determines what's going to happen with their breeding cycles. Yeah, hundred percent. And like the double clutching, uh, that is something I would mind talking a little bit about if, if we don't mind, because that, that's a, in certain circles, when you start talking about double clutching, it's like, it's, it's the end of the world that you're putting the females through this again. Uh, and if the female's not ready for it, by all means, no. And there's definitely like a young female or, a uh, you know, sure. Don't double clutch, but I, I, I've gotten into it before with people uh, with false water cobras. Like they literally are designed to pump out as many babies as possible because where they live, the predators are so numerous that if they don't put out 60 young a year, uh, there's not going to be false water cobras (laughs) because they, they have to, they have to get by that predation pressure. Um, so I, I think it's kind of a – for some species, sure. I'm not saying double clutch everything, but I, I think if she, if they're going to double clutch, if that's a possibility, by all means, it should be a fertile clutch because slugs are oftentimes what leads to dystocia or egg binding, um, whereas fertile eggs are what the things evolve to pass. Uh, so I, I do think it's kind of an interesting thing that you know, sometimes that's a negative – other species, it's not a negative, um, but that's just my my two cents on that. Any thoughts, Matt, Josh, on the whole concept of of double clutching as a breeder? I'll let Josh go. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think you know Matt and you, you know yourself, Zach, hit the nail on the head with it. If the snake's going to go, why not do it? You know, um, if it's not going to put harm to the animal and she's going to lay slugs anyway. Might as well try to get fertile eggs out of her and, you know, make it worthy of double clutching. Yeah, no, I agree. Um, and, and part of that even goes into the fact of, um, you know, these are animals in captivity. These yes. aren't animals in the wild. Where that animal in the wild, I mean, if you've ever picked up a wild-caught corn snake, they're thin they're not real girthy. They don't have the fat reserves. Um, more than likely, they probably aren't double clutching throughout the year. Um, they're probably laying one clutch because their fat storage is just enough to sustain, you know, that one ovulation. But with um, working with animals in captivity, I think we alter the biological path for these animals and can promote, you know, double clutching, triple clutching of animals that may not be um, normal under certain, you know, characteristics or um, environmental cues. Mm -hmm. And and this is where doing your nerdy deep dives and and reading the papers and reading books and and really kind of getting to know the biology of the animal that you're working with is really, it's, it's, it can only help you because with the false waters, again, uh, 
I got back into it. I was was on team like don't ever double clutch. It's bad. And at, at first I thought, OK, biologically, that makes sense, because anytime a female anything is producing eggs, fetuses, whatever it is, you know, that is physiologically and biologically insanely intensive. Uh, but after breeding the, my, my false water cobras the first couple of times and seeing like I bred them two years, I didn't put males back in two years in a row. I got per, a perfect initial clutch. And then a secondary clutch. And when I almost lost my absolute favorite female because of a potential egg binding issue, because she had a slug in there that was like crazy. It was almost the size of a racquetball. It was insane. Um, But she was able to pass it. Uh, I realized, okay, there might be something to this. So I dove into the literature. And sure enough, in nature, based off the life history studies that have been done on hydrodynasties, absolutely is direct evidence that those animals are laying two clutches they have the potential to lay two clutches a year and then i read more and found out boy runa does it um the lyophis now erythrolamprus the yellow belly water snakes or paraguayan water snakes yeah they do it and then uh everybody's favorite multi-clutcher tricolor hognose snakes which matt's currently dealing with them dropping eggs like snowflakes uh that's what they do. Like that's literally their biology. So um, should you be doing that with a first year breeder female that's small and everything? Probably not. Like I, there's totally an argument there, but I think it's up to the the keeper knowing, you know, their animals. Should you push for like four clutches? Absolutely not. No. Three clutches might be pushing it. Two clutches. Sure. Uh, but I don't think it's, I, I think there's some biology there to back it. And Matt nailed it right on the head. These are not wild snakes. Uh, I promise you that the corn snakes out in the wild right now, they do not have paramiscus mice that walk up to their face and sacrifice themselves every Thursday. Like that's not happening. <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, they're not getting these massive doses of protein every single week and a really good way for them to utilize that excess fat and the excess, um, well, whatever you want to call it is by depositing that through vitellogenesis into their eggs. So uh, that's something that I was thinking about. Um, well, actually, I was thinking about this while driving home from vacation. So uh, this is a good little outlet uh, for the, that musing. But, yeah. Um, now, before people start flaming the Colubrid and Colubroid radio Facebook page, we're not necessarily saying, like, double clutch the hell out of everything. We're just simply saying that it is – Let's let's look at the science and the biology here because, you know, a wild snake and a captive snake, not the same thing. Yeah, no, I would agree. Um, because even looking at these tricolors now, mm-hmm. I, I think I have 60 plus eggs right now in the incubator. <laughs> um, of the tricolors that have hatched, um, which is, I want to say over a dozen... Um, all of them have taken washed pinkies, <clears throat> which Zach, when I, I just had to rub it in. You, you did, you did. You just twisted the knife. <laughs> 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 but it, it, that was even after we've had other people on talking about tricolor hogs, saying how hard they are to get going, mm-hmm. everything like that. Um, you know, these are animals that I think this is multiple generations. I don't remember the lineage from Bill Hughes um, where he 
got these females from. But I do think there is something to say, too, as well, about feeding response of captive animals. Mm-hmm. Um, because certain animals, the best feeders are the ones that I would always want. And typically, you know, as, as Josh commended, I mean, his animals took pinks and I sent him corn snakes. And now he's got a corn snake project. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Yeah, that's the secret. Anybody wants a corn snake project, hit Matt up for some file snakes. You get both. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway. Um, Off of that, you know, Josh, over the years, everyone likes to talk about tricks of uh, tricks of the trade. Do you you know, we talked you talked about the rodents, the defrosting them. Do you have any tricks or uh, tips for maybe getting hatchling snakes going since this is kind of the season of which everyone's going to kind of be mind-boggled and trying to get animals going? I mean, I haven't had too much experience hatching stuff out yet. Um, I would say just patience. Patience is the key. You know, um, if it doesn't eat right away, don't stress. You know, uh, it's... It's not going to starve itself to death. You know, if it does, the chances are it probably was unhealthy to begin with. Um, you know, and there's always ways, you know, little tricks around it. Um, you know, you could always do, you know, mouse tails, you know, assist feed and kind of go from there to get them started. Um, you know, like I said, just being patient and trying different methods, you know, like you're – I like the uh, – the washing of the pinkies that that normally helps. I feel like, um, like I said, it kind of gets the uh, the urine off of them and all of that kind of stuff. And it, I feel like it does help trigger a little bit of a better food response for the hatchlings. I know it helped for certain animals that I brought in, you know, originally from you. Um, but yeah, like I said, I think patience is the biggest thing with some of these babies. You know, if it doesn't eat within the first week, don't stress out. You know, it's going to eat sooner or later. Yeah. Yeah. And that's baby colubrids are the one aspect of colubrid keeping that I could do without. (laughs) I I don't have any patience. So um, it's very, very odd that this is the group that I decided to to settle on. Uh, But you are correct. Uh, Things will inevitably go. Uh, I, I I had an out of all things a freaking Outer Banks king snake male that I, I picked him up in the fall. He's an adult. Uh, the other two I think ate the day after they got here. He didn't eat. He didn't eat going into brumation. Brumated him. Thought okay, that's going to kick him into gear. Not going to eat. Or sorry, he didn't eat coming out of brumation. I thought the thing was going to start like literally kill himself, and then just last week. Uh, talk about a switch getting flipped. He like he ate, then he came out and tried to chew on the bottom of the enclosure I have him on. Like so, I don't know what happened, but he's now ready to to eat. And I had written him off to be a dead snake about a month ago. So um, just kept him around, and sure enough, now he's eating. And that's an adult. So with these little guys, holy mother, uh, yeah. I, I just messaged Matt mid podcast. I think we may need to do one of our special episodes on feeding baby snakes. That might be a good one. Uh, that might help a lot of people. Uh, I'm going to be interviewing you, by the way, because you have far more patience than I. 
<laughs> so <laughs> that's how it's gonna go down. <laughs> anyway, no good good advice, Josh. <laughs> Definitely. Oh man. So um, this is kind of an interesting one, Josh, and we, we've kind of asked um, a couple of the more recent ones. So over the years, you've seen the hobby kind of really take different directions with different species. Um, how do you see the hobby changing going forward in the future, whether it might be keeping style, um, animals of interest? Um, the hard part might be herp regulations, which I don't want to get too caught up on because that's um, a difficult one for everyone in the United States at this point, and I, I do feel bad for everyone in Florida, especially with some of the different um, transparencies that are occurring now for those keepers. Um, but I, I think it's something, you know, it, it's interesting to see and, and hear from other people's perspectives, you know, especially yourself. I mean, because from my standpoint, from all our conversations over the years, I mean, you're getting into colubrids, but you're getting into the shiznit of colubrids, <laughs> man. You're getting like top shelf stuff, man. Uh, so, I mean, it's not like you're just going in, like you said, like breeding corn snakes behind the fish tank in the boiler room. Like, no, you're, you're getting snakes that really interest you and really kind of push you. Yeah. So, I mean, this is all like you like you said, kind of depends on legislation and what kind of happens with that aspect of you know our keeping. But I feel like a lot of people are going to go towards what they necessarily like now and kind of do like try to keep the more rare stuff that intrigues them and do more of like a bigger setup instead of just cram stuff into whatever they could fit it in. Um, I feel like, you know, that's where this hobby is kind of going more of like the, the zoo enclosures for, you know, just your house um, and kind of make it a nice display instead of saying, OK, you know, I could fit a 100 snakes, let's just say, in this area. Instead of doing that, let me get 20 and keep them, you know, as best as I can in the enclosure that really is best for them. And I feel like that's definitely where yeah, it's I, going. I, I agree with that. It's, it's been nice to see that happen over the past five years. Um, I would say that's definitely a direction things are heading in, which is pretty pretty cool. Or you get a, a comment like the Texas rat snake post that I made of the female laying eggs in her water bowl, and they go, these are deplorable um, – <laughs> living conditions and I go have you ever seen where Texas rat snakes live yeah <laughs> <laughs> those are <laughs> those are pretty deplorable situations mm -hmm. so <laughs> but but no I I agree entirely um I think the hobby is definitely making a switch towards the uncommon species uh I would even say challenging keepers to their keeping levels and skills I think we're also seeing a revolution um, where people are more interested to, or at least those keepers that are genuinely interested, um, pursuing books like Zach's book that's going to be coming out here soon. Um, you know, I, it, it's just 
Kevin Messenger working on the Asian Rat Snake book with him. I mean, it, it's a, a novel idea of bringing something versus a just simple care guide. Um, you know, a lot of people are more interested in the natural history where the animals are coming from. But in the past, you know, some literature didn't have all that connection. You'd have to go and look at different um, biological approaches or maybe different disciplines to really pull everything together where now you're seeing some of these disciplines brought together into those publications to really showcase a, a, a better idea too as well. It's, it's almost like herpetoculture is maturing. Like it, it, we had the initial getting to, getting to know you phase with the animals. And then we had to figure out how to breed these things and then whether on the welfare side of things, I, I, I think about this all the time with the classes that, that I teach and the position that I'm in, the whole rack versus cage debate. Uh, you know, that, that's just the topic that if you really want to like set people off, you just go one way or the other because those camps are entrenched. But on the one hand, if we don't have the rack keepers producing the animals – we don't have the animals like th- there's an argument there where you have to like understand that it's at some point it was, it's totally necessary. And racks are not necessarily evil for all things. There are absolutely animals that a rack setup is, is amazing. Great example. We have a, it's not a colubrid, it's a water Python. Um, and, and it's the new Guinea line or, or, or uh, phenotype or locale or whatever you want to call it, which are notoriously, they're not snuggle snakes. They want to rip your face off. They are like the most freaking aggressive things on earth. And at school, West, I, I, of course, way back when, given the opportunity to build a collection, I was like, well, we're going to have Australasian pythons. This was before I'd seen the colubrid light. So um, I got olives and I got these water pythons. And the male is okay. The female, we had her in a four by two by two. Um, animal plastics enclosure, PVC enclosure with hides and sticks and cork bark and like the whole kit and caboodle. And that animal for the first two years of its life just struck the glass and was, it was hyper defensive. It wasn't aggressive. It was just extremely defensive. And it inevitably got to the point where students didn't want to work with it. The keeping staff didn't want to work with it. And you know, I was told we will you know, take this to your off-site facility, also known as my garage, and keep it there. So I have the water python female now, and the others are still up at school. And she was in a PVC enclosure. I moved her right into one down here, and same deal, man. She was not loving life, and I'm only in that room maybe half an hour a day. So, like, the amount of humanity that she's interacting with, much, much less. And even in that half an hour, bam, 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 like, you know, so I had an extra tub um, and I put her in a tub with Aspen in a water bowl. And I, I thought, you know, this is just going to like be a temporary thing. And immediately feeding response was better. The defensiveness dropped massively. It's been very interesting. So I, I kept her in there and thought, OK, her she needs to move back to the PVC enclosure now that she's settled because that's better, more enriched. Put her back in within. 48 hours smashing her head against the glass again. So there's a, so you went back to her tub and that's where she's going to stay because I, 
I'm reading the snake. I'm not listening to human opinions. And the snake's telling me the rack's the best place. But at the same time, would never keep a false water cobra in a rack as a sub-adult or an adult. And they're in these great big eight-foot by two-foot by two-foot enclosures in my garage. So, the, yeah, it's it's. I think that the thing that's nice is that you're starting to see people, they've looked at both sides of the debate. They're learning about the biology of the animal. They're making their own decisions, but they're educated decisions. Now, is everybody doing that? No. But way more people are doing it than they were in the past, which is pretty awesome. Yeah, definitely. Like you said, it depends on the species and what you're working with. You know, like I have some falsies that need to start moving up and they need the cage. You know, they they need that enclosure and they need that room to roam because they're just, you know, they they sit out front and just kind of wait for food. And they like I said, they they want to go and you got to give them what they need. You know, like you said, read the snake and, you know, no matter what the opinion is of, you know, the next keeper, it just it depends on the animal. Be a student of the serpent, as Burke says all the time. (laughs) So, So Josh, let me ask this question. What is the next addition for your collection? It's kind of a loaded question, considering you've got a diverse collection already. But if you could have any species within your collection, what would that be? I honestly have no idea because I'm working with a lot of species that I thought would be my bucket list animals. Um, I I really have no idea. Like I have the mandarins, like the exantic stuff. I love that. Um, I'm working with blue beauties, all different type of beauty snakes. Um, I have museranas. I I have pretty much every very diverse collection. So I don't. I really don't know where it's kind of headed. I think maybe maybe some like um, tree boas or like the Sanzanian tree boa, like something like that, um, or Dominican mountain reds, you know, something like that. I really uh, I like working with everything and anything. So anything that would be a challenge, I feel like I would be into. No, this is a solid answer. Um, I got asked that recently, and I I said honestly. I just want to focus on the projects I have currently and really kind of just develop and, and grow those and really kind of diversify what I have, um, you know, because the the hard part is, is when you have all your bucket list animals, <laughs> it's hard to, <laughs> hard to add. I think Zach would agree to that too. Yeah. I mean, no, I'm, yeah, no, I'm, I'm quite happy with where I'm at. I have the only thing that I want to do, that's of, of interest and I, I'm conflicted with it because I don't I don't want to be working with imports. I, I like the idea of having a captive bred collection. Um, on the same time, writing the book, uh, that genus Eurythra Lampris, those little guys um, that are so much fun. You know, I wouldn't mind um, establishing one of those, but they're of all the freaking imported snakes to, to choose to establish, let's try to establish something whose entire diet is frogs. Like you, you can't ask for a more parasite laden animal than 
than those guys. Uh, but um, that's really it for me. I'm I'm happy as a lark with all these this kind of neat transformation I did over the past year back to North American colubrids uh, with the South American guys, and then my rando rear fangs. That's yeah, I'm I'm pretty happy. I don't feel need, and I think it's important to to say you when you when you're asked like what's the next animal, it can totally be not necessarily new additions to your collection, but you you know it could actually be like well I'm going to try to breed these things I have and get more of like what you said Matt uh, establish what I already have like that's still additions to the collection the overall end of the the snake population in your collections going up. Um, and one of the great things for me, I never thought that I would be breeding anything and like dispersing false water cobras across the United States, like Johnny Appleseed. I didn't think I'd be doing that. Um, but it's kind of fun. It's great. Uh, because it's neat. I know you get to get this all the time, Matt, to have somebody a year later, two years later, send you a picture of the snake and the setup. And the really cool thing about false waters is at least the, community that's on social media that's definitely a snake where big spacious naturalistic enclosures are what's being pushed like that's the standard and it's i love seeing people who have like just one pet falsy and they got like a freaking half the room decked out um that's pretty awesome so uh that that's yeah speaking of that how are yours doing josh (laughs) (laughs) mine are good they're they're awesome. I love them. Um, yeah, I have the one from you, and then I have some lavenders. Um, I know how you feel about the genetics with those, but yeah, I like them. I think they're very cool, <laughs> um, and I feel like the, you know they're kind of you know for the size animal that they are, and like you said, for the enclosure and everything that they require they're very popular, you know, and I've only seen them, like, I feel like after year after year, they're just becoming more and more popular. Yep. No, they're the, they're the dog of the snake world. Uh, and they're kind of cool. I'm partial to them anyway, but no, that's great. Glad to hear it. (laughs) Yeah. And then, um, just to touch back with, well, I mean, I, I, no, uh, I was just going to say, like, oh, go um, no, no, no. like we were talking about, like you said, with the new additions with breeding and stuff, I'm kind of curious, you know, to see what certain projects are bringing out now that, you know, a lot of stuff that we've been working with is starting to really have generations now. Um, like me and Matt have been talking with the mandarins. We're starting to see a lot of funky stuff going on with them. And I'm kind of curious to see what the next couple of years are going to bring. You know, I, I only think they could get better. Very cool. Yeah, Joshua was uh, lucky enough to pick up some multi-hat mandarins from me. Um, a lot of stuff, typically, if I know someone's genuinely interested in something and I have good working relations with them, I typically offer those people directly those opportunities. And just recently, I, I go to Josh, I go... So how are those things looking? And he goes, they're not normal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're definitely unique. It's oh, awesome. Cool. So, <laughs> yeah. And 
And that's like the hard part when working with some of this stuff with multi-head animals and things like that is just, you just never know how animals are actually going to turn out um, because there's a lot of surprises along the way too as well. Yeah, definitely. Very cool. So I have one last question, which is, which I've been wondering the entire episode and it's not, it's not on our outline, Matt. It's like a, it's an outlier, but it's, it's, I think it's something that's cool. So, uh, the people listening can't see it, but Josh, Matt and I can see each other. And so if you see these enclosures right here, those are my crested geckos because I got into cresteds. That's what I chose to be the thing to bring me back in. And you said that you were breeding cresteds and, I'm just curious. Crested keeping, this is a fun question. Snake keeping. You you can't get two different animals as far as their care is concerned. Because one needs like every two to three days you're doing something. And then the others, I'm not saying that you like abandon your snakes. But the snakes, it's like pull the tub, look in the enclosure, check for poo, water, you're done. Um What's it like having a collection with all these crazy snakes and all these cresteds? Uh, are, are you like heading towards snakes because they're different or are, are the cresteds just entrenched and, and, and just talk a little bit about how it, what it is to keep two very different herp, foci of herpetoculture under one roof? Um, it definitely keeps me on my toes. Like you said, the cresteds, they require a lot. It's, <laughs> feeding every you know two to three days um and the whole collection i think my collection probably sits around 250 now um and it's only growing by the day um yeah they have their own (laughs) they have their they have their own rooms um it's not that i am switching over to the snakes it kind of was the the crests of the bread and butter um once i started kind of recouping yep. some of my investment with that, then I started to, you know, splurge into the snakes because that's that's kind of really what got me into this industry to so begin with. Um, but, yeah, I, I mean, the Crestes are fun. As a great first-time, you know, pet, they're very – I feel like besides for feeding, it's low maintenance. You know, you, they don't require crazy heat. Um, you know, we could have a whole debate with the UVB and stuff. But they're, I feel like that, you know – yeah. For a first-time keeper, they're they're definitely a good you know starter um, reptile. Yeah, I, 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 they're like the Asian rat snake of the lizard community. Mm-hmm. Yeah, th- except for I can't breed Asian rat snakes. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I can breed crested geckos. I, I will never forget the first time I put a male crested in with a female, and I thought, okay. The, the mating, it's going to take like an hour or two. It took less than 30 seconds. As soon as he realized that that was a, a female, the clicking and then the biting and then the the mating. And I was like, holy hell, this is fast. So, um, no, we actually use them. We're, we're, we're talking about using them at West Liberty because all my progeny went to West Liberty um, as an example animal to show like stud books and, and breeding programs because we can probably get off a generation of eggs from like mating egg laying babies in a semester. Um, but no, we, we have quite a few of them at the school, but yeah, I've always, I, I respect the rack, rack keepers that are doing snakes too. So kudos to you. Plus I wanted you to be able to plug your 
crested while on the podcast. <laughs> so. Thank you. Josh got some cool cresteds too. So mm-hmm. yeah, yes. I, I, like we were saying, I work All with right. everything. So we're nearing the end here. Any final comments, concerns, anything we didn't touch on that you'd like to put out into the universe? I mean, that's on you guys. I think, you know, I'm good with everything. I feel like I answered a lot of the stuff, you know. Um, But, yeah, I'm just excited (laughs) to see what happens this year. Excellent. So if if people want to find you, um, what's the best way for them to reach out and and make contact with you? Um, I have Facebook. It's Jersey Exotic Reptile Keepers or Jerk. Uh, there, Instagram. Um, I'm kind of bad with posting, but I'll always answer messages. Um, yeah, that's really the best way. All right. Awesome. Well, thanks for coming on, Josh. This has been a fun one. Um, Guys, thank you. It was a pleasure. We'll have to have you on in a year or two when you're producing lavenders and file snakes and Vietnamese mandarins and, you know, all these things that us colubrid breeders drool over. Um, if people want to reach out to me, uh, you can find me on, uh, Instagram. I'm Dr. Crawdad there. And then Facebook, it's just Zach Loafman. Uh, and I, like I said before, a little bit older in the fact that I use messenger from Facebook a little bit more than Instagram, but I use them both. And my lab, the way I communicate with my students is through, facebook messenger so i'm i'm checking messenger like i don't know once an hour while i'm awake so if you want to get a hold of me that's definitely the best way and matt people want to reach out to you how can they find you uh you can find me on serpa on facebook and serpa usa on instagram and i apologize for delaying responses <laughs> but it's been nutty yes so <laughs> and so Another thing before we wrap it up, because we haven't done this in the past couple of episodes, but Matt and I are insanely appreciative to the Marilia Python Network for hosting our show. Um, we're proud to be a part of that network, and uh, we have a lot of things planned for the future. And Josh, thanks for coming on. We will definitely be having you on in the future should you want uh, to come back. And definitely. with that, uh, I hope everybody's enjoyed this episode. If Yes. If, if you want to reach out to us, um, you know how to do it. So with that, have a wonderful day, night, evening, morning, whatever it is when you're listening to this. See ya. <laughs>